history of GNOME. Chapter 2 Perfection Improved Episode 0 Retrospective Hello everyone and welcome back to the history of GNOME. If you're listening to this in real time, I hope you had a nice break over the end of 2018 and are now ready to begin the second chapter of our main narrative. I had a lovely time over the holidays and I'm now back working on both the GNOME platform and on the history of GNOME, which means reading lots of code by day and reading lots of rants and mailing list archives in the evenings, plus the occasional hour or so spent playing video games in order to decompress. Before we plunge right back into the history of GNOME 2, though, I wanted to take a bit of your time to recap the first chapter and to prepare the stage for the second one. This is a slightly opinionated episode. Well, slightly more opinionated than usual, at the very least, as I'm trying to establish the theme of the first chapter as a starting point for the main narrative for the future. Yes, this is an historical perspective on the GNOME project, but history doesn't serve any practical purposes if we don't glean trends, conflicts, and resolutions of past issues that can apply to the current period. If we don't learn anything from history, then we might as well not have any history at all. The first chapter of the history of the GNOME project covered roughly the four years that go from Miguel de Casa's announcement in August 1997 to the release of GNOME 1.4 in April 2001, and we did so in about two hours if you count the three side forays on GTK, language bindings and applications that closed the first block of episodes. In comparison, the second chapter of the main narrative will cover the nine years of 2.x release cycle that went from 2001 to 2010. The duration of the second major cycle of GNOME is not just twice as long as the first, it's also more complicated as a result of the increased complexity for any project that deals with creating a modern user experience, one not just for desktops, but also for the mobile platforms that were suddenly becoming more important in the consumer products industry as we're going to see during this chapter. The current rough episode count is, at the moment I'm reading this, about 12, but I'm striving to keep the length of each episode in the 15 to 20 minutes range, so I'm not entirely sure how many actual episodes will make up the second chapter. Looking back at the beginning of the project, we can say with relative certainty that GNOME started as a desktop environment in a time when desktops were simpler than they are now. At the time of its inception, the bar to clear was represented by Windows 95, and while it was ostensibly a fairly high bar to clear for any volunteer-driven effort, by the time GNOME 1.4 was released to the general public of Linux enthusiasts and Unix professionals, it was increasingly clear that a new point of comparison was needed, mostly courtesy of Apple's OS X and Microsoft Windows XP. Similarly, the hardware platform started off as simpler iteration over the PC-compatible space, but vendors quickly moved the complexity further and further into the software stack, like anybody with a Win modem in the late 90s could tell you. Since Linux was a blip on the radars of even the most widespread hardware platforms, new hardware targeted Windows first and foremost, and support for Linux appear only whenever some enterprising volunteer would manage to reverse-engineer the chipset du jour if it appeared at all. 
As we've seen in the first episode of the first chapter, the precursors to what would become a desktop environment in the modern sense of the term were made of smaller components, bolted on top of each other according to the needs and whims of each user. A collection of Lego bricks, if you will, if only the bricks were made by a bunch of different vendors and you had to glue them together to build something. KDE was the very first environment for Linux that tried to mandate a more strict integration between its parts by developing and releasing all of its building blocks as comprehensive archives. GNOME initially followed the same approach, with libraries, utilities, and core components sharing the same CVS repositories and released inside shared distribution archives. Then something changed inside GNOME, and figuring out what change is central to understanding the various tensions inside a growing free and open source software project. If desktop environments are the result of a push towards centralization and comprehensive integrated functionality exposed to the people using, but not necessarily contributing to them, splitting off modules into their own repositories, using their own release schedules, their own idiosyncrasies in build systems, options and coding styles, and contribution policies, ought to run counter to that centralizing effort. The decentralization creates strife between projects and between maintainers. It creates modularization and API barriers. It generates dependencies, which in turn engender the possibility of conflict and barriers to not just contribution, but to distribution and upgrade. Why then this happens? The mainstream analytical framework of free and open source software tells us that communities consciously end up splitting off components instead of centralizing functionality once it reaches critical mass. Community members prefer delegation and composition of components with well-defined edges and interactions between them, instead of piling functionality and API on top of a hierarchy of poorly defined abstractions. They like small components because maintainers value the design philosophy that allows them to provide choice to people using their software, and gives discerning users the ability to compose an operating system tailored to their needs via loosely connected interfaces. Of course, all I said above is a complete and utter fabrication. You have no idea the amount of takes I needed to manage to get through all of that without laughing. The actual answer would be Conway's law. Quote, Organizations which design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations. End quote. We have multiple contributors, typically highly opinionated, typically young, or at least without lots of real-world experience. Worst case, the only experience available comes from years of computer science lessons where object orientation reigns supreme, and it's still considered a good idea despite all the evidence to the contrary. These multiple contributors end up carving their own spaces, because the required functionality is large and the number of people working on it is always smaller than 100% coverage. New functionality is added, older modules are dropped because quote-unquote broken or quote-unquote badly designed. New dependencies are created to provide shared functionality or introduced as abstraction layers to paper over multiple modules offering slightly different takes on how some functionality ought to be implemented, or what kind of dependencies they require, or what kind of language or licensing terms ought to be used. Complex free software projects with multiple contributors working on multiple components favor smaller modules because it makes it easier for each maintainer to keep stuff in their head without going stark raving mad. Smaller modules make it easier to insulate a project against strongly opinionated maintainers, and let other strongly opinionated maintainers root around the things they don't like. 
self-contained modules make niche problems tractable, or at least they contain the damage. Of course, if we declared this upfront, it would make everybody's life easier as it would communicate a clear set of expectations. It would, on the other hand, have the side effect of revealing the wardrobe malfunction of the Emperor, which means we have to dress up this unintended side effect of Conway's law as being about choice, or mechanism not policy, or network object model. The first chapter in the history of the GNOME project can be at least partially interpreted within this framework. The idea that you can take a complex problem space and partition it until each issue becomes tractable individually, and then build up the solution out of the various bits and pieces you manage to solve, letting it combine and recombine as best as it can to suit the requirements of the moment, platform, or use case. Throwing Corba as an object model for good measure, and you end up with a big box of components that solve arbitrarily small issues on their own, and that can theoretically scale upwards in complexity. This, of course, ignores the fact that combinatorial explosions of interactions make things very interesting for anybody developing, testing, and using these components. And I use interesting in the oh god, oh god, we are going to die sense of the world. More importantly, and on a social level, this framework allows project maintainers to avoid having to make a decision on what should work and what shouldn't, what is supported and what isn't, and even what is part of the project and what falls outside of it. If there's some part of the stack that is misbehaving, wrap it up. Even better, if there are multiple competing implementations, you can always paper over them with an abstraction layer. As long as the API surface is well-defined, functionality is somebody else's problem. And if something breaks or mysteriously doesn't work, then I'm sure the people using it are going to be able to fix it. Well, it turns out that all the free software geeks capable of working on a desktop environment are already working on one which by definition means that they are the only ones that can fix the issues they introduced. Additionally, and this is a very important bit that many users of free and open source software fail to grapple with, volunteer work is not fungible. That is, you cannot tell people doing things on their spare time and out of the goodness of their hearts to stop doing what they are doing and volunteer on something else. People just don't work that way. So if being about choice is on one end of the spectrum, what's at the other? Maybe a corporate-like structure with a project driven by the vision of a handful of individuals and implemented by everyone else who subscribes to that vision, or at least that get paid to implement it. Of course, the moment somebody decides to propose their vision or work to implement it or convince people to follow it is the moment when they open themselves up to criticism. If you don't have a foundational framework for your project, nobody can accuse you of doing something wrong. If you do have it, though, then the possibilities fade away, and what's left is something tangible for people to grapple with, for good or ill. At the beginning of the GNOME project, we had very few individuals with a vision for the desktop. While it was a vision made of components interoperating to create something flexible and adaptable to various needs, it still adhered to a specific design goal instead of just putting things together from disparate sources, regardless of how well the interaction went. This led to a foundational period, where protocols and interfaces were written to ensure that components could actually interoperate, which led to a somewhat lackluster output. Out of three 1.x minor releases, all we got was a panel, a bunch of clock applets, and a control center. All the action happened on the lower layers of the stack. For instance, 
GTK became a reasonably usable free software GUI toolkit for Linux and other Unix-like operating systems. The X11 world got a new set of properties and protocols to deal with modern workflows in the form of the extended window manager hints. Applications and desktop modules got shared UI components using Corba to communicate between them. On a more meta level, the GNOME project established a formal structure on itself, with the formation of a release team and a non-profit foundation that would work as a common place to settle the internal friction between maintainers and the external contributions from companies and the larger free and open source software world. Going back to our frame of reference to interpret the development of GNOME as a community of contributors, we can see this as an attempt to rein in the splintering and partitioning of the various components of the project, and as a push towards its new chapter. This tension between the two efforts, one to create an environment with a singular vision, even if driven by multiple people, and the other to create a flexible environment that respected the various domains of each individual maintainer, if not each individual user, defined the first major cycle, as it would, spoiler alert, every other major cycle. Now that the foundational period was over, though, and the challenges provided by commercial platforms like Windows and OS X had been renewed, the effort to make GNOME evolve further was not limited to releasing version 2.0, but to establish a roadmap for the future beyond it. Next week, we're going to dive right back into development of GNOME, starting with the interregnum period between 1.4 and 2.0, in which our plucky underdogs had finally become mainstream enough to get on Sun and IBM's radars, and had to deal with the fact that GNOME was just not Adobe anymore, in the episode title, On Brand. <laughs>